wacky fun. I've been I've visited Iowa twice. Not a big fan. Both times a little bit of a horror movie. All right. So we're talking about the Civil War, and um, and again, I'm going to try to relate this to, to church history things, but it's just such a significant point in, in American history that we kind of need to talk about the war. And the more I kept trying to figure out how to do it without talking about specific battles and things, it was really hard because specific battles tell you about what people were involved and why they did what they did. So enjoy the whirlwind Civil War timeline. And if you remember, we had a whirlwind Revolutionary War timeline. We have a whirlwind Civil War timeline. Last week, we talked about the Battle of Fort Sumter that kind of kicked the war off. The next thing that happens, West Virginia secedes uh, from secession. If you remember, Virginia has seceded. This is Virginia. There is only Virginia. Virginia it looks like this. And it's seceded with the rest of the, of the Confederate States. But West Virginia said, the western counties in Virginia said, I, we want slavery, but we don't want to leave the Union. Um, the Union isn't making us not have slavery. Lincoln has repeatedly said he supports us still having slavery. We don't want it to see. So they actually broke away from the state that broke away. The western states and became a western Virginia. So you get West Virginia here. Now this shape. Does that shape now look like Virginia? Yeah. So uh, by 1863, it is officially now a state in the Union. Now, if, so you've got these blue states that are the Union. They're still part of the United States. These are the territories over here in the West. You get these red states that have now broken away to become the Confederacy. These purple states are starting to form this kind of buffer zone where they're members of the Union, but they're still slave states. They still hold slaves. So Missouri, Kentucky, West Virginia, Maryland are all slave states that are still part of the Union. Does that make sense? Because when we think of it, we usually think, oh, Union, no slaves, Confederacy, slaves. Well, yes, but nobody's made, nobody's made slavery illegal. Nobody's even said that they want to make slavery illegal. Lincoln has repeatedly gone on record saying he's not trying to make slavery illegal. All right. Next thing that happens, because this makes total sense, the Union blockades a bunch of southern ports. Because they realize, Lincoln in particular realized, he's like, all right, you guys have most of the best officers. Remember, we talked about that last time. You guys have most of the best soldiers down there south. We have all the industry. All the guns are made up north. All the ammo is made up north. We have all the textiles and stuff. That's, we, we get our cotton from you, but then we're the ones that do stuff with it. So here's the idea. If we can cut off their trade, if we can keep them, all they've got is cotton, that's good. You know, they, they might have really nice uniforms, but we're going to win by attrition, right? That does make sense. So, Winfield Scott, if you remember Winfield Scott, hero of the, uh, the Mexican-American War and the guy that told Lee, no, wait, I want you. It's like, ah, brilliant, Winfield Scott. Comes up with what he calls the Anaconda Plan. Because he said, what we need to do is blockade all the southern ports. We need to control the Mississippi. We need to control the Gulf. We need to control the coast. Like an anaconda, wrapping around it, macaw. You know, wrapping, wrapping around it and squeezing the, the life out of the South. This is what we need to do, right? And it does, to, it makes total sense. It makes total sense. Because if you can keep them from getting any stuff, you'll, you'll, you'll choke them out. Citizens up north are assured this will be over in a matter of months, if not weeks. It all kind of depends. I mean, because 
if, if the South can't get anything but the stuff it has in the South, and we have this massive military war engine, yes, they've got good people, but we've got all the war stuff, they'll give up. They'll go, oh, this doesn't work. Isn't that spreading us a bit thin? Well, the Navy. And, 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 and if, we could just, if we can blockade all their ports with our Navy, and if we can go down there with our army and, and take those rabble of rebels and tell them to stop it, they'll stop it. We spank them and they'll stop. No, that's the way it works. Isn't that the way that works? Exactly. All right. Problem is, two uh, Confederate States of America officers or officials tried to get to England. So they tried to, to run the blockades and get to England to get support from England because England was their biggest trade partner. England trades a lot in specific. I mean, England doesn't need our industry. So primarily, England is trading for cotton and stuff like that. England then demands that their officials be returned. They're like, you can't, you can't do this. This is wrong. And England says, if you don't return the officials, if you don't do this, we will declare war on the United States. So you will be at war with the Confederacy, and you will be at war with England. Which is kind of a stinky place to be, if you're America. Because you go, I think we could beat the Confederates. I don't know if we can beat the Confederacy and England. We do have a stronger navy, but we're kind of busy doing Anaconda stuff, right? So, England has now, as I say here, unofficially, officially declared their support for the Confederacy. Now, they... They are officially neutral throughout the whole war. They don't take sides. But they do give a lot of equipment and material and weapons and military advisors to the South. How did they get it there? They were, blocking we're blocking everybody leaving the South. We're blocking any kind of commercial shipping, any kind of warships coming from the South out of, of the of, uh, southern ports. We're not necessarily blocking foreign powers coming in, because if you try to block, if we were to say, hey, France, you can't do trade, France doesn't like that. And so we don't, we don't want to bug the only people that, we're, that, that we still have a good relationship with. We just want these guys not to be able to get out and do anything. So we're in a sticky situation, and Lincoln's like, that whole will win by attrition? Yeah, we'll choke them. They, they won't be able to trade. It's like, ah, not bunnies. Yes, they will, because... We can't, exactly what you're talking about, we can't very well say no trade without really annoying all the people we still want to be friends with. So you got to find another way. That whole anaconda thing isn't really going to work, at least not this way. Was that a favorite saying of Lincoln? What? That whole anaconda thing isn't going to work? No, the nut bunnies? Yes. <laughs> actually, actually, George Washington coined the term nut bunnies. <laughs> Okay, I stole that from a, a old card. After he chopped down the cherry tree. After he chopped down the cherry tree with his teeth. Um, this is being recorded. Do you realize how many school children are listening to this online going, George Washington chopped down a cherry tree with his teeth and yelled, nut bunnies? None. None of school children. But there are apparently people all across the country that we don't even know listening to this going, what are they... I didn't get in until 4 o'clock in the morning last morning. <laughs> no, so, um, uh, actually, I stole nut bunnies from, a, from an old cartoon called Freakazoid. It's just a nice way of expressing frustration. <laughs> you can't ever actually be angry while saying nut bunnies, so it kind of diffuses things. You, you're like, oh, I'm frustrated. Oh, nut bunnies. You just, like, you, you lose it. Anyway, Battle of Bull Run. Have you heard of the Battle of Bull Run? Yes. 
classic battle, unless you're from the South, in which case you haven't heard of the Battle of Bull Run, you've heard of the Battle of Manassas. That's the way that works. The, the, the Union tended to name battles after the nearby rivers, and the South tended to name battles after nearby towns. So, cross the Bull Run River to Manassas. So, you fight the battle, what do you call it? Different sides call it different things. Anyway, so, the United States says, okay, especially if we can't do Winfield Scott's Anaconda plan and choke out the ports, we need to kick them in the field. So, we need to do this as quickly as possible. We need a quick, decisive victory. Um, the highest field commander that we can get right now is a guy named Irvin McDowell. Irvin McDowell, just want you to march on Richmond, the southern capital. Take Richmond, okay? Just, just go do. And he's like, I'm a supply officer. Like, yeah, but you're the highest ranking guy that we can actually put in the field right now. Go take the army. He's like, the army's in shambles. I mean, we just lost half the army. Half the army, just kind of, every other guy just went down south. Like, we're still trying to put things together. Like, just, just go. Just take Richmond. How do I take Do I fill out a requisition form for Richmond? I'm a supply officer. I don't know how to do this. Just go. So McDonald's like, all right, I'll try. And he marched across the Bull Run River into Manassas, and he ran into PGT Beauregard. Remember, this is the guy that took uh, Fort Sumter last week kind of easily because he's really... Good. So you go, hey, but I feel so bad for McDowell. It's such a bum rap. But I just, it's like it's like you took an accountant and said, go, fight, fight uh, Chuck Norris, beat him. Like, I, make it. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, citizens in nearby towns, uh, Washington is right nearby, they went out and, and with picnic lunches because they're like, this is going to be interesting. I mean, now bear in mind, it's still time in history where everybody shows up for the hangings. Um, so it's a little bloodthirsty. But they went out with a casual picnic lunch. They're like, this is going to be interesting. Oh, pop, 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 pop. Ooh, that's just like watching soldiers in the toy. And it was horrible. Nobody fought the way that they thought that they were going to fight. Everybody's just, you know, like shoving each other's faces in the mud and bayoneting everybody. It's just like, don't, don't look. This is horrible. I mean, small children crying to see how horrible this was. They were absolutely shocked. In part because neither army was really prepared. Neither army really knew what they were doing, because both of them, this is kind of the first time they'd done it this way. With the exception of one guy, a guy named Thomas Jackson, who trained his soldiers so well, most of the soldiers under his command had been under his command in the Union Army. So it wasn't just like a decimated, to see if we can scramble this together. He took his whole unit, his whole regiment, and went south with them. This guy was such a good example of discipline for the rest of the... What? Stonewall. Yeah. One Brigadier General rallied his troops saying, there's Jackson standing like a stone wall. Everybody else, is, everybody else is scrambling all over the place. Jackson's regiment is solid. They're doing exactly what they need to be doing, which is why he's called Stonewall Jackson. So for the rest of the war, if you hear the guy Stonewall Jackson, bull run. That's the guy that made the Confederates go, wait, we can actually win this. For those of us from the North, we go, no, please. You like him? Stonewall Jackson is really cool. I, I really like a guy named Longstreet. Or, so. Not, not uncommon. An amazing number of guys in the Civil War either died from being shot accidentally by their own people, in part because there's so much powder smoke in the air, you can't see anything. So you think you're shooting it. And... 
some of the union outfits are actually kind of a light, light blue gray, and there's a lot of difference and differentiation within the southern units. So some of them were kind of a mustard gray, some of them were just normal cold gray, some of them were kind of a light blue gray. So there are times where you just go, and especially if you remember the flags, can you picture light gray and you're holding the, the, the stars and bars and you just go, I don't know which side that guy's on. So a lot of the guys either died from friendly fire or the, the majority of people that died in the Civil War died in hospital. Uh, because Civil War battlefield medicine, horrible. It's just horrible. So. Uh, the, it's getting better. This, this helped, it helped propel medicine. This did. This did. But this is the one thing I liked about Dances with Wolves is that beginning where he's like, I got shot. I'd rather just be dead. This is going to end badly. Just somebody kill me, please. You just go, yep, that's pretty much Civil War battlefield medicine. Anyway. So neither army is really prepared. Um, South gained, I mean, they didn't win by much. You wouldn't say that's a great victory. But it's, it's huge in that the Union Army had to retreat. They're like, we've got all this massive war engine. We are going to get in the field. We're going to end this in a week or two. And the, and the Union retreats. It's like, that's... Everybody walked home going, this is going to be ugly. Winfield Scott says, I'm done. I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. Clearly, I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm tired, and I'm old, and somebody else could do this. So... They got a new guy in who's really good at training people. His whole thing was training people. George McClellan. And he's a total idiot. I have to, he's such an idiot, I have to put it in the notes. He's an idiot. He's really good at training guys, though. Really good. But he's no good in the field at all. No good at all. On paper, he looked good, but not a good thing. We'll come back to him. 1861, the Emancipation Proclamation gets issued. Right? Anybody know the time here? General, uh, Major General John Fremont. Remember John Fremont from a couple of weeks ago? The guy who basically took over California and said, Mine! Well, America's. Um, so, Fremont, the, the king of, let me just exceed my orders and do what I feel like I want to do, and yeah, sure, I'll be in charge, was given command of the Department of the West, which is Missouri. Because if you remember, most people, the United States is basically that, that right half. The left half is, I don't know, tumbleweeds? California. It's pretty much the way they go. So, to them, Missouri is the West. So he's in, in charge of the West. Being Fremont, immediately exceeds his authority. He declares martial law against... Uh, uh, Missouri is a Union state. Right? It's purple. Immediately says, martial law. I'm going to quell this rebellion, you know. Yes, there are rebels in Missouri, but it's a Union state. Claire's martial law confiscates the property of any rebels, including their slaves. So it's like, because they're property. Not like people, they're property. And so we take everything, including your slaves, and then immediately, unilaterally, and without authority, declares that any confiscated slaves would be declared free. Immediately, officially demonstrates that the Civil War is all about the liberation of slaves. All this time, Lincoln has been saying, it's not about slavery. Now, he's, he's been giving speeches. Remember, last week we talked about this great speech he gave in Peoria about the morality of slavery and why it's wrong, and biblically we need to stand against slavery? Yes. But as president, he's been going over and over about how this isn't about slavery. I'm not going to touch slavery. We're not going to free the slaves. I just want to pull the union back together. 
one of the first things out of the gate of the Civil War, Fremont goes, bring the slaves! You're Lincoln. How do you take that? You're Washington. You know, the, the city of Washington. How do you, how do you take that? <laughs> At best. You might just go, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. You don't understand what you just did. PR nightmare. He also came up on charges of potentially carving out for himself this independent nation in Missouri, which is exactly what he was doing. He had a personal bodyguard. He started setting things up the way the emperor of Mexico had. He's going, what are you doing? Which is exactly the charges they faced 15 years before when they put him in charge of, well, they didn't actually put him in charge of California. He just took charge of California. Don't, don't ever set up your own country in the middle of another country. Yeah, how'd that work for Deseret? Yeah. Not so, not so great, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, the place in Africa that's surrounded by anyway, that's not the point. Um, but yes, so you, yeah, yes, okay. So, um, what was I saying? Oh, well, so you, moreover, just don't ever put Fremont in charge of anything. Just put the little corporal, do not put him in charge of anything. Anyway, so he's immediately replaced by a guy named Henry Halleck. And uh, Halleck, don't make fun. You people are harsh. <laughs> He's cute! <laughs> I like to think of him Winnie the Pooh. So, Winnie the Pooh here is very not ambitious. He's, he's a number cruncher, paper pusher, nice guy. You go, thank you, Henry. You guys are harsh. Lincoln immediately overturns the Emancipation Proclamation. Says, no, 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 no. He had no authority. We're not trying to free any slaves. No Emancipation Proclamation. But everybody in the South, it's on every uh, front page of every newspaper, what the Union really wants to do in all of this is set the slaves free. Don't listen to anything else that they say. Clearly, this is what it's all about. It's all about freeing the slaves. Which all the abolitionists up north go, Yay, it's all about freeing the slaves. And Lincoln's like, no, 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 it isn't. No, he didn't have authority. Please stop, please stop. Once a blog gets out there, it's out there. You can't unblock, can you? You can sit there and go, duh, I want to hide that post. Oh, there's no hide that post. Once it's out there, it's out there. And so everybody dug in for it to be really long and ugly. Now, um, as you might expect, like I said, abolitionists kind of jumped on this. And it's their opportunity to rebrand the war. Lincoln's like, it's all about the Union, all about the Union. It's all about the slaves. It's all about the slaves. For instance, abolitionist Julia Ward Howe met Lincoln in November of 61, and she wrote new lyrics to the popular song, John Brown's Body. There's a song that everybody was singing in all the pubs about John Brown. Does anybody know what the new lyrics, what the song was called when she was done? My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage. And so it's... Exactly. So this is the battle hymn of the Republic. And everybody up north started singing this thing. It was already a tune that they associated with abolitionism and John Brown and martyrdom and things. She, gave, she took this and said, I am rebranding the war as a crusade, as an act of worship to God to free the slaves. I understand why people... I understand why people change the words when they sing it now, and it torques me off every time. I get it. I get it. But the, in the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. 
As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. Uh, while God is marching on. Nowadays when people sing that, and I get it, I get why they do it, because nobody's dying for this. They say, as he died to make men holy, let us live to make men free. I get it. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and it's, it's fine, because it's like we should live our lives doing that. But the whole point of the song, this is the, <laughs> the crux point of the whole song. The whole point of the song is, is Christ died to make men free. We should die to make men free. We should be willing to do the same thing. Um, pardon me? I don't think I even want to know. You can look it up. We can find out. But it may make me say, no, I'm sure it's this. Sure, I'm sure it's. Anyway, but it's but the the idea is saying, are you willing to do this? I, um, my family fought on the side of the Union in in the Civil War, and uh, we, my grandmother we only had one surviving letter of, of one of the guys that fought, and he specified in his letter, this is why he was fighting. He's like, I'm fighting because we need to end slavery. If Christ was willing to die for me, how can I not be willing to die for these people? And I'm just like, booyah! So every time I hear him go, let us live to make that freedom. I get it though. Don't. I'm not being judgmental. It's just my family was willing to die for this. I understand the idea. The whole point of the song is being willing to die for this. Kind of screwing up the song. So for the Confederacy, are they saying that they're willing to die to keep them property? No. What the Confederacy says is we're willing to die to stay our own independent sovereign place. So we can make our own decisions. We can make our own decisions about you know anything. Like what? Anything, really. Like what? Whatever we want to make our decisions about. Anything in particular that anybody's telling you you can't make a decision that way? Lots of stuff. Like what? Okay, well, one would be slavery. So you're fighting for slavery. No! Fighting for states' rights. On what kind of topics? Slavery. It's all about the branding. How are you packaging this? So... Where the Union is singing these songs about marching and dying for, to, to free people, the South keeps singing songs about how awesome the South is. Aren't we a wonderful place? Oh, I wish I were in the land of Dixie. It's, oh, it's awesome. Nobody's singing, let's keep people slaves. No, it doesn't. I mean, that's, nobody's doing that because that's not the way they're branding it. If you remember Lee, would oppose that. He actually owned slaves, but he's like, it's an evil. It's just a necessary evil, but it's wrong. And, and so he wouldn't have stayed. Okay. Other stuff is still going on in the world. Strangely enough. Yeah, go figure. France decides to invade Mexico and put Austria in charge. Because, again, history, right? History's all about funky bedfellows that you go, I don't get that. Um, Benito Juarez uh, is, is the uh, democratically elected um, president of Mexico, and they decide we need to build up the infrastructure in Mexico, so we're going to stop making loan repayments to everybody in Europe. Uh, no, 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 we need the money. No, no, we need the, ma we need the money. Um, you, you don't get to, I kind of could use the money. I, I can't, I don't get to say, I think I'm done with those student loans. Like, no, no, people call you if you do that. So, Emperor Napoleon III of the Second French Empire. This is the guy who's the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. So, Emperor Napoleon III leads this invasion of Mexico to drive Juarez into exile. Juarez goes, I'm still president. 
of apparently this small patch of land, but I'm still president. Pretty much everybody in Europe and in the United States said, go for it, Napoleon. Because they owe us money. They owe you money. You don't get to do that. It helps everybody if you guys are in charge of this. And so France creates the second Mexican Empire. Who do you put as the emperor? You need an emperor. So they're like, well, who's technically in line for that? Like, well, there are no Spanish. Technically, the Spanish kings are in charge of that, the Habsburgs. Well, there, there are no Spanish Habsburgs anymore. What do we do? Like, well, it's the Austrian Habsburgs. It's technically related. Like, yeah, and they don't have the funky lip. I said, okay, those are the Spanish, no, Spanish ones, overly inbred. We talked about that. Um, so who's the next Austrian Habsburg? And in Maximilian. Who goes, who did what now? They're like, you're Emperor of Mexico. Oh, okay. So, yeah, exactly in his German way. He goes, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, I'll do it. So they send Maximilian over there with a bunch of Austrian troops. So France puts Austria in charge of Mexico. So there's all these troops with spikes on their helmets speaking German in control of Mexico. Anyway, so Mexico is an Austrian empire uh, until Maximilian's death in 1867, at which point everything just goes back to Juarez, who says, look, they're not in charge of it anymore, and I've been in charge of it the whole time. It's a world of civil wars at the moment. It's, everybody's going, no, it's all a free-for-all. Anyway, 1862 comes along, because 1862, 1861 was just wacky. So 1862 comes along, the Union starts winning, Start the year off with a pair of victories by an upcoming general named. Anybody recognize this guy? Ulysses S. Grant. Earlier picture of Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah. A little bit. Anyway, we'll see him in a little bit too. So he starts winning everything because he's good at this. So out west, because remember the Midwest is west, catches Fort Henry, opening up the Tennessee River, which is huge because remember Anaconda Plan. Union's trying very hard to control the waterways. And then 10 days later, he takes Fort Donaldson. He loses 2,000 men to the Confederates, 14,000 men. This guy looks great in the papers. Because after a really bad 1861, you start 1862 with Grant just won. A week later, Grant just won. Grant just won big. He's go, ooh. So everybody sitting there reading newspapers likes this guy that nobody's heard of out west who isn't part of the power elite. This guy came out of nowhere. He had been, he hadn't been successful in anything in his life. He he was not a politically, because uh, most people in the, in, the, in the Union Army are politically connected and everything. This guy's out of the Beltway, so everybody at home goes, "Yay!" What about the Union leadership? What do you think? Let's promote him. He's winning. Let, that's what Lincoln said. Let's promote him. He's winning. He's an overnight media sensation. The very politically charged leadership of the Union Army says, we don't like him. He isn't us. So they start spreading rumors that he's an alcoholic. He's drinking all the time. Which is not true. He's actually darn near a teetotal, especially compared to most officers. He's not a drinker. He just doesn't do that at all. <coughs> how many of you have heard about Grant's drinking and how horrible a drinker he was? Rumors are good. I think once you blog it, it's out there. Um, were there times that he, that he that he drank? Sure. I mean, pretty much most of the guys drank at one point or another. But he spent most of his time writing 
Letter after letter after letter to his family. He loved his wife. He loved his children. He wrote extremely beautiful letters, quoting scripture and things, and talking about how much he missed his family and how much he loved his children and asking how they're doing. And it's like, please tell me how she's doing, how he's doing, how's, how's this? Doing? I wish I could be there and see that. I mean, it's huge, long, beautiful, heartfelt letters. Whereas Lee barely ever mentioned his wife. I mean, so it, it, it's, it's interesting when you actually start looking at these guys. It's not as simple as, Lee's the good guy on the wrong side, and Grant's, is, Grant's kind of the, the gruff alcoholic, but he's on the good side. You know, so, yeah, we paint in overly broad strokes. Lee was not perfect by any stretch, and Grant was a lot better than people give him credit for. But he's also really good in the field. This, for a guy that never seemed to be able to figure out what to do in civilian life, he found his calling here. He's like, no, this I get. I totally get this. Unfortunately, McClellan. Did I mention McClellan's an idiot? I think I did. He's overly cautious. He kept being so timid that he, no matter what chances he got, Lee's army kept slipping through his fingers. He'd find out exactly where Lee's army was and go, you know, let's talk about this. Let's, all, let's go to my ready room and let's discuss this over tea and discuss it for maybe three days. And then by the time we actually have a chance to take, oh, he's gone now. Some people think he's just a doofus and lost a chance. Other people think that it becomes its own tactic if you discuss things so much that you never actually have to act on them kind of the analysis paralysis, but on purpose. Oh, look, now I don't have a chance to lose to Lee in the field because I can't even find him. He was so, <coughs> so nasty to Lincoln, too. Yes, he was. Nobody, nobody liked him. Um, Lincoln eventually realized he's incompetent and temporarily took over as commander. He's like, you know what? I think I'll just be in charge of the military. <laughs> I have no training in this whatsoever, and I think I'll still be better than you. So, how about that? Um, First commander-in-chief. Kind of, yeah. Okay, 1862, the Monitor versus the Merrimack, right? You ever hear the story of the two ironclads? Never happened, okay? Never happened. The Monitor never faced the Merrimack in battle. Do not think that. That is bad history. Because they're both Union ships. The Monitor and the Merrimack were both Union ships. Back in 1861, the USS Merrimack, with a K, nobody puts a K on it. They should, because it had a K on it. Anyway, the USS Merrimack was sunk in Norfolk Harbor um, to keep the, the Union sank her. They scuttled her to make sure that the, the Confederacy couldn't use any of her stuff. But the Confederate Navy was able to salvage a bunch of stuff. They were able to salvage a lot of her hull, salvage her engines, salvage some of her guns and things. And they decided to convert the Merrimack into something different, something nobody had ever seen before. And so they built a new ship on the salvaged wooden frame of the old ship. It was still wooden underneath, but they put this iron plating up at the top and created this ironclad and rechristened it the CSS Virginia. The Monitor never faced the Merrimack. The Monitor faced the Virginia. But Monitor and Merrimack, that's got a ring to it, right? Except it never happened. So, same time, the Union said they both were independently coming up with this idea of an ironclad. They had a totally different design for their ironclad. Um, instead of being this big, heavily armored thing with fixed guns like the like the, the Virginia was, the monitor is this little itty bitty thing. It's very nimble. Its its deck is only barely above the waterline. So, but the only thing that's sticking up is this movable turret with two guns on it. It's got like no profile. It's really hard to hit. And so, if you're the Virginia and you've got fixed guns, you can't move with them. And it takes the Virginia like an hour to make a complete turn. Seriously. So it's like, how are you going to hit this little turret that, and a ship that moves a lot faster than yours? 
you haven't got a prayer. So the monitor is completed just days before the Virginia set sail. So we're going to talk about the monitor versus Virginia in a place called Hampton Roads. Battle there. Virginia wasn't expecting to fight anything other than like wooden ships. So they had no armor-piercing shells. They just had stuff that would hit wood and kind of bounce around and do some damage. And uh, the monitor was really quick, but since it was brand new and they hadn't really tested it, they're like, kind of afraid that if you fire the guns, it'll blow up. <laughs> I mean, study like submarine warfare in the Civil War. People tended to die in experimental craft. So they're like, um, we're just going to pack the guns with half charges. That should still be enough. should still pierce any kind of wooden hull. But let's not go full charge, because we're afraid the guns in the turret are going to blow up, uh, which is a legitimate concern. So she's able to dodge the Virginia's guns, but can't do anything with it. Virginia can't hit her, and she and even if the Virginia does, it's just going to bounce right off, and the monitor is shooting, it's basically a pea shooter. So, long and short of it, nothing happens, right? They spend hours shooting at one another, not even denting one another. It's pointless. Except, you know, that they made this point that if either one of them has been a wooden vessel, because the Virginia took out some other wooden vessels and things. They made the point that if either of them had been a wooden vessel, or if either one of them had figured out that they were going to be facing this ironclad, they would have mopped the floor with the other one. And so, even though it's totally inconclusive, either one did diddly to the other one, it was extremely clear to everybody, they're like, it's pointless to make any more wooden ships. That's, it just, in one pointlessly inconclusive afternoon, that's over. Which is, I think, is hysterically funny, because you just go, wait, so you did nothing other than prove that you can no longer fight the same kind of warfare. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, so, like we talked about the, how huge the stirrup was. That was a game changer. Everybody was like, "Well, that everything's different from now on." Hiroshima, Nagasaki. You just go, "Well, everything's different from now on." That's once you hit certain levels. There are certain <laughs> specific um, technological levels in warfare that you say once you get there. Uh, once you have plate armor, war is totally different. Once you have ballistic weapons like like pistols and rifles and things, plate armor is pointless. It was like once you get to certain points, you just go, okay, everything's different. Oh, now everything's different. Oh, now everything's different. Well, once you got like the warfare and civil war and all the other lines, that trench warfare goes to our Yeah, it's just about foxholes thing. Okay, Battle of Shiloh. Grant's men are over here in Tennessee at Pittsburgh Landing, and they're caught by Beauregard. Remember, Beauregard's good. And so, early Sunday morning, about the one mistake that Grant made is he didn't think, he'd gotten the impression nobody's anywhere near them. So he didn't even send out scouts because he's like, I know nobody's anywhere near us. I've read the intelligence reports, nobody's anywhere near us. Beauregard was. Snug up, smacked him Sunday morning. He, Beauregard is outnumbered, but he got the better of Grant. But it says something about Grant that even though he lost more men than Beauregard, he held his position, and it was Beauregard that had to retreat. But it was a costly victory. It's like, yeah, we won. Yeah, we held our position. Yeah, the Confederates retreated, but we lost a lot more guys than they did. We got spanked. Um, so, painful victory. And again, the Washington rumor mill says, he must have been drinking. No, he didn't think anybody was nearby. Must have been soused. How drunk was he? 
So they demand to Lincoln that Grant be relieved. Clearly, he is incompetent. Clearly, he should be relieved. Lincoln responds, I can't spare this man. He actually fights. <laughs> As opposed to McClellan, who sits there and goes, uh, more tea. So it's, please, no, I can't. I cannot get rid of this guy. He's good at what he does. Also, one guy at Shiloh makes a good name for himself as a hero. Sherman. Sherman. William T. Sherman, wounded twice in the battle, in the head and in the shoulder, had three horses shot out from under him and kept fighting that day. This, this may be the Civil War's toughest individual. In terms of, the, this, this is the guy you go, I think you understand war. I, I really think you understand how war works. Very, very tough, rugged fellow. He, he looks genteel, doesn't he? This looks like a dangerous fellow. Because he's kind of a dangerous fellow. He's kind of a little wolverine of a human being. <laughs> Golly, you people. So, poor Holland. Um, we need some sort of organization. McClellan's a doofus. Hey, I know a guy who's a good organizer. He's the guy that fixed everything out in, in Missouri. Let's promote Halleck to be the, the commander of the Union Army. Winnie the Pooh will lead. Will lead. <laughs> Are you sure you're not thinking Elmer Fudd? I can see that one, too. Oh, now I can't not see that. <laughs> okay. You people are mean! Don't make fun of him! So the reason I've been calling Winnie the Pooh, though, is not just to make fun of him, but to say, he had, like, no grit to him at all. And so, very quickly, he's like, oh, he's a really good organizer, but he's lousy in the field. And all he really wants to do is, is make sure his desk is clean, make sure his resume is clean. I don't want any, I don't want any de defeats. And so, in, in some respects, he's even worse than McClellan. Wow. Okay, so then we got the Army of, yeah. So we got the Army of Northern Virginia now. Around the same time that Halleck took over up there, Jefferson Davis says, you know, I'm kind of tired of running my army. I'm going to promote somebody one of my trusted military advisors to be the guy in charge of everything. Robert E. Lee. This guy is good. He saw it. I'm going to put him in charge. And so Lee takes the army and turns it into the Army of Northern Virginia. It's like, I'm going to convert the thing. I'm going to rename it. Uh, it's no longer the Army of the Potomac. That's what the Union would do. No. I'm going to remind one another that we're not the army in this sphere area of rivers. We're the army of this geographical landmass. So every time that we talk about our army, I want to remind them what they're fighting for. So we're going to be we're going to have this aggressive new battle plan. We're going to fortify Richmond. We're going to take the attack to the Union. So defeats McClellan's forces soundly at the Seven Days Battles uh, on the Virginia Peninsula. Pushes the Union army out of Virginia by beating guy named John Pope at the Second Battle of Bull Run or Second Manassas, which is so bad that Lincoln actually put McClellan to take over after Pope. He's like Pope, you are so bad at this. He would even be better. Lee then says, I'm going to invade Maryland. They want to invade the South? No, we're invading them. Because he understood. It's a funky little teaching moment in case you ever have to fight a war. You don't win by killing more of the enemy's soldiers. Nobody's ever won a war by killing more of their soldiers than they kill yours. That's what some people say. It's not what a war is. And you don't win by taking more land than the enemy does. You, that's only part of how you win. You win a war. How do you win a war? Even that, no, there are times Britain took our capital in 1812. There you go. You win a war by being willing to fight longer than your enemy is willing to fight. If you're willing to fight longer than they are, you win. 
So if you can make their public opinion say, we're no longer willing to fight, you win. That's not worth it. It's not worth it. Even if we do, that's the pure victory. We can win, but it's not worth winning. What we, for instance, if somebody up north could figure out that if we just burn the south to the ground while they're fighting up north, even if they win, they're, they're, what did they win? They won cinders. If somebody were to figure that out, if only we had somebody in the Union Army who really understood war and what war was all about, who would say, a Wolverine of a guy. <laughs> okay, anyway. Which is a great thing of why he's... I mean, the classic, the classic Sherman quote, that if anybody knows any quotes from Sherman, that is totally misunderstood, because his quote is, war is hell. And people say, oh, well, he's, he's being mean, he's being dark, he's being... People are like, you're bringing hell to the South. And he says, war is hell. I'm, I'm just reminding them of that. Anybody who pretends it isn't, it's like the picnickers at Bull Run. They're missing the point. I'm just reminding us of the cost of this. I'm hoping to remind them faster than they're trying to remind the North. Anyway, so Winston Churchill has that famous speech where he's just like, we shall go on to the end, we shall never surrender. That's Winston Churchill's big argument in World War II. We won't stop fighting. I don't care if, if, if there's one English boy who can carry a pointed stick, we have not lost against Hitler. We will keep fighting, and we won't lose until we stop fighting, and we will never stop fighting. And Hitler's like, ah, oh, I think he needs it. So, so Lee says, in general, what we got to do is have a greater motivation to win than they do. And so let's fight of the Union. Most of the Union, all they're doing is fighting to bring us back into the fold. We are fighting for our own independence. We have a better motivation. We just keep reminding ourselves and reminding them of that. So when you take the war to the northern states, public opinion to turn against it, the North will simply stop fighting, and we will have won. That's what we want to do. So, realizing that it's absolutely essential to control that flow of materials, Lincoln authorizes the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Remember, there was the, the whole thing, we're going to build that Transcontinental Railroad down here, they had the Gadsden Purses, so that we could, do, we could do the Southern Transcontinental Railroad, we avoid those pesky mountains. Remember that whole thing that never happened because nobody cared? Suddenly everybody cares, but you can't build it down south because that's, that's all, you know, Confederate states now. So now we got to build it through the mountains. It's like, yeah, we bought that whole New Mexico and Arizona thing so that we could build the thing. We're not going to go through there. We're going to go through Utah and Nevada. And it's okay, we've got enough Chinese people and Irish people that if we lose a thousand of them building it, it's fine, we're okay with that. Again, I'm Irish, so I sit there and go, hey, Battle of Antietam. Have you ever heard of Antietam? Or Sharpsburg? Kind of depends. Are you from the south or from the north? Which suggests Antietam is what? A river. And Sharpsburg is? Oh, there you go. You guys are good. You guys are good. So Lee throws his whole army of northern Virginia into the invasion of Maryland. And McClellan goes, well, let's not overextend ourselves. So let's just send a token force against him and stop him. But you stop! So sends a token force, a, a, a force out there. Uh, and they meet at Sharpsburg, Maryland, along the Antietam Creek. Both sides lose about 12,000 guys in one day. The bloodiest day still in American history. Somewhere around 23 to 24,000 American soldiers dead or, or wounded on one day of fighting. Horrific, unimaginable bad stuff. Lee's pushed back across the Potomac to Virginia. Give him credit. It's like, yep, you stopped him. 
we went in, they both lost 12,000, and, and, and he, he went limping back across the Potomac. McClellan brought all the rest of his army down, so you go, the full might of the Army of the Potomac, and a wounded Lee is limping slowly away. What do you do? Well, you certainly can't follow him and finish this, right? Because what if you lost after that? So Lee's core strategy of, I'm going to take it there, and then North is going to break their morale, and stop. Before he even begins, he's like, nope, I didn't break their morale. If anything, they're going to break ours. Man, I hope we, I just hope we can get away. McClellan, all his troops come, they're all fresh, and they're like, what do we do? McClellan says, nothing. Just do nothing. I, I, I just, I can't lose. I mean, we lost so many men today, I hate to lose any other guys. We, we got them to leave, that's the important thing. Let's just stay here and regroup. Lincoln was furious. He's like, 24,000 Americans were casualties in a single day. You had the opportunity to end this, and you did nothing? You wasted that? I mean, we barely went, but you wasted that? So we relieved McClellan from his command, saying, and I love this, if you don't want to use the army, I should like to borrow it for a while. You idiot! All these people died for nothing! In his place, he promotes General Ambrose Burnside! Okay, okay. So this should be a move for many of us, including specifically Caleb, who brought him up earlier, and Michael for reasons which should be obvious you know, when you look at Burnside. One of the heroes of the battle. Why was he a hero? I'm not entirely certain. Burnside is not a great general. He's not a great leader. But everybody likes him. He just keeps being in the right place at the right time. You know, his troops win, not necessarily because of his leading, but they just, they won. They did good. And everybody goes, oh, that Burnside is, look at him, that natty-dressed fellow. He's great. He's great. Every, he's, everybody likes him. Huge. Um, Michael, Michael made the argument on Friday, it's because of his facial hair. It's just so cool and distinctive that everybody loves him. Um, you can talk to Michael about that afterwards. There's actually something to be said for that in terms of you. What, say briefly what you're saying. Um, oh, you mean like the uh, the, the poll? Yeah. Okay. So um, somebody at work posted a link to a best Civil War leaders like voting contest thing online, and no names were attached. It was just black and white pictures of guys' faces, and they all had some kind of picture there, but. Um, I looked at them, I didn't, a couple of them I thought it's amazing. Um, after you make your pick, it's added to the tally, then you see the results of everybody else. And this guy, and even though, like, lots of people had the same general style, so lots of people had, you know, this, this same kind of thing going on. But he got like 17,000 votes to like, he just screams Civil War general, doesn't he? <laughs> so yeah, apparently apparently this online survey you just go, uh, who looks the coolest? You go, uh, that guy with the mutton chops on his face. You know, that's another uh, yes. After Burnside, yes. yes. <laughs> it, because of him, because Burnside they said, Well, he's got side things on his Burnside side thing, sideburns. So Burnside sideburns. Somebody just did some fun. So they're called sideburns because of this guy. And every after people are like, yeah, those are cool. 
Anyway. I like that. Battle of Fredericksburg. Um, Lee's retreating. Burnside says, I should chase him. Not really all that good. Everybody thinks I'm great. I don't really, don't really know what I'm doing. So I'm going to start step this. <coughs> okay, tell you what. I, 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 let's, uh, Washington, what do you think? And Washington, how do we go? Uh, yeah, we, we'd really like to win, but I don't know that we can risk losing. I mean, yes, McClellan should have immediately pounded on, but now that Lee's had time to regroup, we can't afford a costly, we can't even afford a costly victory. Well, just stop and think about this. And he finally says, you know what, no, no, I, no, 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 I really, no, I think we should go, I should go. I need these pontoon bridges so I can cross the rivers. And so the administrator screwed up his multiple requests for, I mean, he waited, he waited months for pontoon bridges so that he could get across the, 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 the river and waited even longer. By the time he finally attacked, Stonewall Jackson and James Longstreet, my, my favorite guy, um, had taken the time to dig in and fortify the town. You're not taking Fredericksburg. Burnside's troops were slaughtered in a huge Confederate victory, three to one victory. Just got pounded on and limped back. Call it the mud march. This horrible wintertime march. This is humiliating. Oh, bad. Morale was destroyed. South's morale, everybody's like, yay, Lee! Like, Lee did everything right. Basically, South is doing great. The North says, this is horrific. This is a pain. We've got horrible morale out. Now, after. After Antietam, after Fredericksburg, and after a succession of leaders, how many guys have already, sort of like a year and a half into it, how many guys have already been in charge of the, of the Union Army? Lincoln is running out of political cards and political capital to spend. He's like, I, there's only so far I can keep this going. Because I keep saying, the Union, let's keep the Union together. And we keep losing all the time, and nobody wants to do this anymore. Um, we've lost all this momentum. Um, Lee's plan is actually beginning to work. Even though Lee is still stuck in the South, this plan of if we can just keep this going long enough and keep it ugly enough, the North will say, we don't want to do this anymore. The North is saying, we don't want to do this anymore. Uh, Michigan Senator <clears throat> Zachariah Chandler attacked Lincoln and said, the president is a weak man, too weak for the occasion, and those fool or traitor generals are wasting time and yet more precious blood in indecisive battles and delays. We need to be done with this. So even some of the most staunch northern abolitionists are saying, maybe there's other ways of doing this than fighting a war. So you're, you're Lincoln, what do you do? Like, how do I keep this going? We're in the dead of winter. I can't win any more battles. What do I do? Oh, no, that's after the Battle of Gettysburg, and you haven't seen that yet. Okay, he, well, first off, he dismisses Burnside, because there's no way, after all that, that you can keep him there. And he gets Fighting Joe Hooker. Joseph Hooker. They call him Fighting Joe because he actually fights. He's out there. He's doing stuff. He's on top of stuff. Yep. Doesn't matter. People are still like, yeah, I, I just don't care anymore. He's like, this guy will win in the spring when we can actually start fighting again. Where's Grant? Out, out, west, out west and kicking booty. Okay. He's doing great, but he's out west. I mean, it's, it's, it's become little sidebars. I mean, everybody's like, oh, good to see Grant still doing stuff, but... So Lincoln really needed to reframe the war, rebrand the war. He's like, I need a cause. I need something bigger than let's let's be willing to fight and die and die and die and die and die to bring these rebels back into the family so that we can all hug. Can't we all hug as the Union? I don't want to hug them anymore. I've been talking about Johnny Reb for the last year and a half. I don't like them. I don't want them. So you're Lincoln, what do you do? 
How do you rebrand the war? Is there something that you can think of that's willing that people might be willing to die for, other than? Oh, right. There's a whole song about that. So, starting 1863 off with the Emancipation Proclamation. This time for real. This is for real's Emancipation Proclamation. Listen, Fremont's. I'm in charge. No, this is Lincoln going. Okay. So Lincoln says, I, I, I've been planning to free the slaves since Antietam. I've been actually drafting something since we won Antietam, and it was very costly, and then we screwed all that up. Now we absolutely have to do this. But instead of a, hey, look, momentum, da, 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 it's this, i got to save the war somehow. How, how stressful would that be as a president to say, I somehow have to keep my country at war? Because my country wants to stop warring, and we really can't stop warring. I really need to keep sending men into the field and dying. If you ever watch pictures of Lincoln and look at them chronologically, he aged about 20 years in a four-year span because it's just incredibly stressful. It took a huge toll on him. But i got to be clear as to what this proclamation wasn't because most people don't understand the Emancipation Proclamation. They either think, oh, it's, it's wonderful, free the slaves, changed everything, or they say, no, it's just politics. It's more complicated than both of those things. It was not an act of Congress. It was a presidential. I don't know if you can picture a, a, a president that does executive orders. But it's still presidential. It doesn't change any laws. Everything's still the way it was. But he can do some things because he's the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. So anything that has specifically to do with the war effort, he can make decisions about it. He just can't change laws because he's still the executive, not the legislative branch, right? That's important. It's a civics lesson, but I know. It also didn't outlaw slavery. It didn't change slavery. It just freed existing slaves. They could still get more slaves. But everybody who's currently a slave, you just got free. But the institution of slavery is still on the books. None of that changed. And it didn't even do that in every slave state. He only did that in the ones that are in active rebellion. Not so even Missouri and Kentucky and Maryland, West Virginia, no, they can still hold slaves, and all their slaves are still slaves. Why? Yep, and that is absolutely true. But there's a there's also even a more primal reason for it. No, I mean that's true. It's just like I'm not going to torque off the people that we actually like and that are working with us. But there's a, there's a more fundamental reason as to why he couldn't do it. Now we'll get to that. Maybe. And by the way, by then, because it wasn't an act of Congress. Exactly. Under his power, but the Confederacy. The Confederacy is technically enemy. under his power because he is fighting against them. But these slave states that are part of the Union, by the way, Tennessee went. Oh, okay, we're done. By this time, uh, the Union had taken Tennessee. They were in control of Tennessee. So all these purple states is still legal, in part because, in large part, because we didn't want to bud the people that are our allies, but also because Lincoln's like, I can't. I have no authority to 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 do anything with the slaves there. Secretary of State and very strong abolitionist guy named William Seward, not John Seward, different guy. Anyway, William Seward said, "We apparently show our sympathy with slavery by emancipating slaves where we cannot reach them." and holding them in bondage where we can set them free. That's apparently how strongly we feel about this. So it's very frustrating people, but again, I want to say, Lincoln did what he could. Um, without an act of Congress, this is all that he could. So, like I said, before we judge him too harshly, this is, 
This is literally the most that he could do. He didn't legally have the opportunity to. But also didn't free and make freed slaves into citizens. Because again, Lincoln can't do that without, without a law. So they're technically just freed black persons. They're not American citizens. They're just not slaves anymore. By the way, you don't have to be an American citizen to be part of the United States Army. You just have to be a free person to be part of the United States Army. Which means, that he says, by the way, if you can make your way up north, we will hand you a weapon and stand beside you, you freed slaves. Which is A, really cool, B, really bright because you get to pad the Union Army, and C, really good because now, well, what does that do? What does it do down south? It gives motivation for slaves to leave. Some of them were serving. So there were a number of Confederate soldiers that went whoop and flip-flop. Um, but, there's, but there's a sense of, even if you say, you're advising Lincoln, and you say, you do realize most of them are never going to be able to make their way up north. Technically, they're not going to be able to do that. Lincoln would respond, but the mere fact that they could try. Now, doesn't that mean that the South has to be paying attention to that? Didn't we just split the fronts now? Aren't they having to pay attention to every slave all the time? Anything we can do to make this difficult on them in the South. Lincoln wrote in 1862 to explain his stance. He said, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union. And it's not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I'd do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. So he's like, let me be very clear. This is specifically to help the Union. However, you do need to put that in its context. Remember what we talked last week about the Peoria speech. It's like, personally, he is very strongly anti-slavery. So again, think about how stressful this is for Lincoln. He's like, personally, I'm extremely strongly anti-slavery. As president, though, I have to focus on the mandate to save the Union. That's what I'm working on. So I, I, I'm going to do everything I can do but I need to keep the focus on the main things. Very, very stressful job. Do not ever want to be president. By the way, let's end with Japan. Because, why not? <laughs> the Emperor of Komai is sick of all these Western influences, and he has a chance to be a thorn in the side of his enemies. Who's, who's been in control of Japan? The Tokugawa Shogunate. For those of you that have never been here, you go, how am I supposed to know that? But these guys keep coming up. So these guys have been in charge for what? 400 years, 300, 400 years, something? So he fanned the flames of uh, this movement of reveal the emperor and expel the barbarians. This little show, uh, slogan that they had. And so he issued his expel the barbarians order in 1863, where let's kill and expel everybody who was in Japanese. Um, so pro-imperial forces attacked all the foreigners, killed everybody in the streets, um, everybody else had to run, as well as various Tokugawa officials who they saw as harboring, even though technically it was the emperor who had allowed this to happen, but they saw them as harboring the foreigners. If you're the Tokugawa, what do you do? You just sit there, sit there and let them kill you? So you fight alongside the Westerners against the imperial forces. Because you don't want them to kill you, and they're killing you. So what do you, your guy in the street sees, we don't want all these foreigners here, the Tokugawa let them in, the emperor says, let's kick out the foreigners, and now the Tokugawa are fighting the emperor. What do you feel? Very confused. Very confused. But they say, okay, 
you're just not Japanese enough, Tokugawa. You're you're just you've lost all of it. You're you're bad people. And the Tokugawa shogun finally crumbles. They have their own civil war, and the shogunate's gone. And now the emperor's in charge. And it didn't sit well for the emperor because the Tokugawa were still the strongest military forces, and all the foreign forces, like the British, the Americans, are these mop the floor with the imperial forces. For instance. This year, in, 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 in 1863, USS Wyoming took on an entire Japanese fleet and kicked their butts. Uh, in the uh, uh, Shimonoseki Straits, I think is how you pronounce that, beat them single-handedly. Um, limped away, but took on a whole fleet. So you go, you're not going to beat these Western powers. So, he dies suddenly of smallpox in 1867. Some people think somebody smallpoxed him. Uh, other people go, well, it, it was going around, so who knows. But his son, Meiji, took the throne. And his son said, clearly, we cannot stand against the foreigners, but we also don't want the shogunate back. What we need to do is adopt Western dress. We need to understand their court customs. We need to understand their military. We need to expand the emperor's powers, and the emperor has total control of things. I want to do scientific reform, I want to do industrial reform, I want to build up our navy, I want to build up our army, I want to get guns, I want to do everything we can do. And it starts what's called the Meiji Restoration. So if you know anything about Japanese history, this is kind of a huge thing up through World War One. By the time he dies in, in, in 1912, Japan had become a major world power. At the beginning of his rule, they're like, we want nothing to do, it's still on the books that any Japanese person leaving Japan, anybody coming in, will be killed. By the end of his reign, they're up there with France and Germany and Russia and England as major world power. Yep, they did much the same sort of thing. So next time, we'll close here. Next time we'll talk about the Battle of Chancellorsville, Chancellorsville, which is... I apologize for spending so much time talking about history instead of just church history. But you have to understand how this is affecting the way people think. When we talk about the United States, the United States as opposed to these United States, when we look back and go, well, are they fighting for slavery? Well, sort of, but they don't see it that way. There's a mindset that's being betrayed by all this kind of stuff on both sides, where sometimes it's wrapped in religious imagery, sometimes it's not. Everybody involved, my uncle, who's a church historian, or a, church historian, a Civil War historian, specifically said, I, I encourage you to tell people, remind them that almost every letter he's ever read talked about quoted scripture verses, talked about how much they appreciated the Bible studies in the camps, how much they appreciated their chaplains, how much they appreciated going to their Sunday services in their camps every every week. It's like, like everybody was a devout Christian. Everybody was taking this really seriously. So there, it, you can't divorce this from what's going on in the church because people brought their devout Christianity into the war on both sides. Last thing, and we'll end. Why is that? What was going on right before the Civil War? Yeah, it's huge reformation. People come to know the Lord at a rate of 50,000 people a week in the United States, right before the Civil War. A huge, huge evangelistic explosion. And then you get to the Civil War, you get the Civil War that um, that changes all that. But people brought that, that awesome evangelism, that awesome... Uh, an explosion of prayer and, and love of the Lord in with them to the Civil War. And it's in almost every letter that you'll read if you chase that down. So, let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you that no matter what goes on in our lives, no matter whether we have peace, no matter whether 
car breaks down in Des Moines, no matter what is going on in our lives, however chaotic it seems, you're sovereign. Whoever becomes president, you're sovereign. Whatever wars are going on, whatever battles are going on, you're sovereign. And I pray, Lord, help us never to be blithe and uncaring about that, but help us definitely to be able to trust in you and not let our anxieties get the better of us. I thank you, Lord, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So thank you again for putting up with a history lesson in our history.